Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast from The Independent. I'm Christian Broughton, editor of The Independent, and I want to start by explaining a little bit about why we've started this series. There is a lot of news out there at the moment, and let's face it, it's pretty scary stuff. Turn on the radio or the TV and you'll see more of the same. Lots of headlines about death tolls, infections, ventilators, jobs, and much else besides. But there is more to this story of COVID-19 than that. One of the great privileges of working at The Independent is that you get to have in-depth conversations with the people who bring you the news. People like Ben Chu, our economics editor, who we're speaking to today. Usually, these conversations take place in a newsroom. Well, we're not in a newsroom at the moment. We're working from home like so many other people. But it is still important that we have these discussions because it's in these conversations that we really get to grips with the subjects of the day to get beyond the headlines and work out what we as a team of journalists really think is going on. Well, now we would like to invite you, our readers, and now we can call you listeners too, to join that conversation. So please do contact us and join in. Ask questions suggest subjects for discussion. You can email the coronavirus podcast at independent.co.uk and we'll also be following the social media hashtag, hashtag indie coronavirus podcast. That's indie with a Y, coronavirus podcast. So if you use that hashtag on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, we'll see your post. Well, you can also reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Christian underscore B. So we won't be aiming to bring you the latest news in this series. To be honest, podcasts aren't a great medium for that. And besides, we have live blogs and a homepage and the front page of our daily edition, all of which do a much better job of bringing you the latest breaking news. Instead, we'll be discussing all kinds of themes, from anxiety and mental well-being to educating your children at home. And you can see more on these subjects under the new coronavirus advice tab on our website menu. But back to this podcast and this first episode. We wanted to start the series with something that is very newsy, something that we know is weighing on a lot of our readers' minds, and that's the economy. At this point, let's say hello to Ben Chu, our economics editor, who has been waiting patiently and silently. Hello, Ben. Hello, Christine. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. No um, coronavirus symptoms in our household at the moment. Um, how's working from home working for you? It's working just about. Luckily enough, I'd already converted my spare room into an office before the coronavirus uh, emergency hit. So I was well prepared from that perspective. So, yes, enjoying the new space. Well, today it's, um, it is uh, Tuesday, the 24th of March, as we record this. So it's the uh, second day of homeschooling for most <laughs> children across Britain. Um, I've just uh, retreated from our dining room, which has been turned into uh, my room for work and also where my um where my kids are currently going through their um their work which has been brilliantly set out by their teachers i must say so mm. uh, respect to all the teachers of britain who've uh, seemed to have done an amazing job for sending our children home 
with things to keep them occupied and uh, educated. Um, but so to the economy. Yes. Now, we chose this subject partly because one of our most read articles um, on this um, whole issue uh, was about the economy. It was a piece not by you, Ben, but by Omar Hassan, um, and it really uh, took on a life of its own on Facebook in particular. And the headline was, coronavirus will bankrupt more people than it kills. And that's the real global emergency. Um, I think it's, it's true to say that it's the second most important issue after the health and medical safety itself um, and is coming up a lot in, in even the conversations about those frontline services where we have press conferences from Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or any of the other world leaders facing this crisis. And it's always the factor in the background when they discuss the social distancing or the kind of disruptions to our society. Um, obviously, they're trying to achieve a healthcare goal, but at the same time, they're trying to minimize economic disruption. I mean, I, one obvious place to look for um, economic uh, indicators, and it's not always, I know, certainly around the office, you've pointed out to me before that markets aren't always the best place to go looking for economics information or economics outlooks. But, you know, the U.S. markets are down around 35% since the start of the crisis. The FTSE 100 was over 7,000 uh, a month ago. It's now under 5,000, um, or at least it was this morning. Um, what do you think the medium, long-term pictures look like? How much should we pay attention to the valuations um, that we currently see every day coming at us thick and fast? Well, to answer that question, I think the most important thing is to actually just think for a moment about what the stock market is, right? So the stock market is listed companies. It's not all companies. It's ones which are, uh, have floated. So it's a, it's a subsection of all the private sector companies which employ us, right? And then if you okay. take it from there, it, what it is, is the valuations put on those companies by a diverse group of investors, traders, speculators, it's their expect and that that valuation is based on what they think those companies profits are going to be in the future right okay so if you think about it like that what those expectations are are going to vary very widely depending on what the news is that's coming so it's inherently volatile stock markets are inherently volatile and especially so when a big external almost like a global natural disaster thing like this hits so you're going to get a big overreaction or rather you're going to get a big reaction no matter what, because people's expectations about what the future profitability of those companies was going to be are suddenly upended. Right. So if you think about it from that perspective, it's just as possible that if we get another shock, maybe a positive shock, maybe we get a vaccine, maybe we get some positive news about the number of cases, uh, that are, the new cases that are happening. Maybe we get news about the slowdown of the spread. It's less lethal than we thought. It's possible that that could lead to a big reaction in the stock market because that changes expectations in the other direction. So actually the market could go up just as quickly as it's gone down. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it's worth thinking about it in those terms when you're thinking about what the stock market moves mean about the economic outlook. We've seen some discussions around uh, short selling recently. It's always um, held up as a bit of a bogeyman of the markets. People don't like the idea of uh, investors making money out of bad news. We saw this around Brexit. 
how we've seen it around a kind of bad news stories previously. We saw it out of the financial crash. Um, it's certainly linked to volatility in the markets. Obviously, not everyone who, who practices short selling is inherently bad. I mean, it's a, it's a valid way that some businesses uh, offset their risks. Um, they want to know that they have some kind of investment that goes up at a time when everything else is going down. Um, but certainly, the volatility does not seem welcome at the moment. Everything yo-yoing around the place it seems to raise anxiety levels, not just of investors, but of, of, of the man on the street too. Um, do you think we're going to see some, I mean, is it feasible that we see some restrictions on that kind of trading? Well, it's interesting. I wrote a column about this uh, last week when uh, France and uh, Italy imposed some restrictions on short selling by investors. And my verdict at that time was this actually isn't going to do much good. I mean, that was guided by me covering the financial crisis about 12 years ago when there was also restrictions on short selling, particularly for financial companies. So there was a ban on shorting banks and financial companies in the belief that they were going to go out of business. It didn't do much good. The ones that were subject to the ban, they went out of business anyway, or rather they had to be bailed out by, uh, by national governments. So that, it didn't seem to do much good. In fact, it, there was some evidence that it just increased volatility and it actually just made prices uh, more, um, you know, less responsive to real news. So my verdict last week was actually, this, it's a bit of a red herring, this banning on short selling. There's no point doing it. The evidence of history suggests that it's not going to help you achieve what you want to achieve. That said, this, in the space of those seven days, this, this economic uh, situation has deteriorated so much, and it's so hard to see what the proper valuation of companies should be. I'm not saying they should necessarily do it, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were suggestions from that regulators should actually just have a sort of closure of the stock market for a period to let things reset to let things calm down. There is some historical precedent for that. You know, they've closed markets in times of war in the past. It's not impossible. I wouldn't necessarily, as I say, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the right thing to do, but I think it's not impossible. We might see some drastic action like that. As I say, just to let things calm down and reset. So if we are looking for any kinds of indicators that might tell us where we're going, um, as I say, there's a figure of 35%, which I think is the approximate fall in US markets since the coronavirus story began. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to be 35% worse off in the future ongoing, um, but are there some other indicators that we should be looking through to, to gauge how much damage this is doing to the, uh, the, 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 the well-being, the financial well-being of our country and other countries? Well, I mean, we've had some information today from business surveys. They tend to be the indicators which are the most high frequency like they come out the most often and they are looked to by um, central bankers and investors and economists as the real kind of canary in the gold mine uh, sorry canary in the coal mine to show what's actually happening in the economy in something close to real time those were really bad today you know they showed a bigger collapse in activity than any, any time even actually even worse than during the financial crisis a decade ago so that's what people would look to but I think it's very important to put this in a bit of context here. This is not, if we are going into recession, which pretty much every economist believes, this is not a normal recession. You know, in a normal recession, governments, central banks are trying to stop activity collapsing. What's happening here is they are deliberately, governments deliberately want to stop um, economic activity happening. 
because that's how they that's how they create this social distancing that's how they're trying to protect the health of the country so in a sense it's very un, uh, unconventional what's happening because the recession if it happens and it's deep will not be a sign of policymakers failure it'll be a sign of their success at least in the short term because they want to bear down on those human interactions they want to bear down on economic activity and that's the whole point of what they're doing so we shouldn't necessarily think about it in the way that we did in 2008 in the early 90s recession you name it going back to all those recessions since the uh, second world war this is very very different and we have to recognize that when we're thinking about our welfare and our future prosperity so if and when the bounce back happens what kinds of things can we see happening first? I mean, if you imagine that the, the news comes through that social distancing has had an effect, that the spread of the virus is slowing down, that the, uh, the, the, the potential threat to the NHS is, is eased and been mitigated somewhat, and people can start mixing again. How fast can those businesses that have shut down abruptly now, and, and in terms of planning a business, um, you can't really imagine anything um, uh, uh, more difficult than, say, running a, an enormous retail business right now with huge numbers of jobs depending upon it, huge numbers of the workforce who therefore need to come out and go to that place of work. You know, this may not be a, a business that, that's considered critical. It's not in the financial services or it's not in healthcare. Um, but it's, a, say, a fashion retailer or something like that. And suddenly you're facing a situation where you're closing down a massive high street operation. Once that's reversed and things are coming back, have those structures been inherently damaged by this period? Have the staff been let go? Can they really just open the doors again and expect it to be back to normal? Will consumer demand and confidence be there? Talk us through how you see maybe the kind of flourishing at the end of all this process looking. Sure. Well, that's absolutely the key question. And the, the question of how quickly we can bounce back from this when hopefully the disease and the spread of it is contained is t- uh, very, very dependent on the ability of these government schemes, which we've been hearing about in the UK, but also in other countries, to try and stop work, uh, companies shedding workers at this time of shutdown, lockdown, collapsing demand. If those companies can sort of remain intact, sort of be preserved in aspect for this period of, of shutdown, in terms of keeping their workers on their books, in terms of keeping their equipment ticking over, in, in terms of not losing any of their potential productive capacity, if that is successful, there's no reason why when this is over, they shouldn't be able to start up uh, very rapidly and get back to sort of uh, producing what they were producing before. The danger is that as their order books uh, collapse as they can't work that they start laying off staff and then um, they start um, the, their equipment starts rusting they can't use it um, and they lose expertise and skills and human capital the danger is that when the crisis is over they then won't be able to produce what they were producing before so the view of economists is very clear on this you've got to spend whatever it takes in the short term to try and stop that wasting away of potential productive capacity so that precisely as you said when things do get better we can get up to speed in terms of what we are producing we were producing before it um, that's absolutely crucial but there's another question though obviously i mean we're getting ahead of ourselves slightly because we're still at the very very early stages of this but hopefully when it is over 
There might be a lack of consumer confidence. You know, there might be a sort of scarring effect. That is when the more traditional tools from, uh, from treasuries and uh, central banks, et cetera, may be needed to try and stimulate spending. As I say, we're quite a way off that yet. But I think those are the broad ways that policymakers are rightly thinking about this. It's really about preserving the potential productive capacity of the companies and individuals within our economy. That's the number one objective. So that phrase you just used there, whatever it takes, is certainly something that's been um, uh, used by uh, central bankers and chancellors. Um, Recently, we've heard um, our own uh, British chancellor say that. I think I've heard Donald Trump say that. We're going to do whatever it takes. Um, Does it not matter so much, the bill that we run up in the short term? I mean, is there a... Does the phrase whatever it takes imply that there's this infinite amount of spending that we can do in the very short term to keep things shored up? Yeah, I think um, that is the right way to think about it. it in terms of the, I, I would so say borrowing and the usually yeah, usual no, I know what you mean. About borrowing yeah. don't really matter right now. I don't think they do. And think about it in terms of a false economy. If you allow, as I was saying before, that productive capacity to uh, be diminished, to be wasted away, the debt that we incur will be harder to bear after we get back to normal, right? So you may have a smaller bill now because you say, well, we can't afford to spend that much. You'll have a smaller bill coming out of it, but it will be in relation to a smaller economy. Whereas if you spend a lot now, if you don't watch the you don't mind the purse strings so much, you will come out of it, hopefully, with a larger economy. So even though the spend is bigger um, today, um, it will actually be smaller relative to the size of our economy when we come out of it. That's the nature of the false economy accounting that we need to beware. It will be a false economy, I do think, to, to sort of stint on the size of the bailout and the size of the support for the economy through this really, really difficult period now. 
um, central bank policy or government policy uh, from Europe or elsewhere? Yeah, I think central banks are generally doing what they did in the financial crisis, uh, uh, as I say, a decade ago. QE is back. Yeah, QE is back, but this time unlimited QE. I mean, that's the big development. It was astonishing yesterday. The Federal Reserve said, we will just buy as much American government debt as is needed. You know, in the financial crisis, they were all saying we'll buy a certain amount of a certain amount of it. This time they've said, whatever it takes. And, they've re- and they really mean it. That was amazing to see that. In terms of other policies, though, uh, as you were saying, what, who's done something innovative? I think really a lot of people have been looking to the Scandinavian countries in terms of they were very quick out of the blocks with this plan saying that the state, the best way to solve this is the state will step in and pay the wages of the workers directly because businesses are not in a position, a lot of businesses will not be in a position to pay their workers' wages because they've got no orders coming through the door. We don't want those businesses, as I was saying before, to sack those workers, to lose those workers, so the state instead will just cut out the middleman and pay them through the companies. Everyone said, that is a brilliant idea, why don't we roll that out? And there were some suggestions that it wouldn't work in other countries. But I think slowly and surely it's moving in that way. If you look at the, the our own government's response in terms of guaranteeing 80% of the uh, wages of uh, distressed companies' workers, that was very in line with what uh, the Scandinavians and Den- Denmark and Sweden and Germany were planning. So it's quite interesting that they seem to have blazed the trail, if you like, in the crisis response. Has anyone really managed to come up with a solution that protects workers that don't work for a very big organised firm that could be claiming government benefits? What about the gig economy? What about if I'm an, uh, a delivery driver or I'm an Uber driver or I have a zero hours contract um, at a retail operation or something like that? Um, these jobs being less well defined also therefore uh, present greater challenges when the workers themselves want to know who to turn to to get support for their situation. Is anyone around the world kind of starting to tackle this side of the problem? You're right. It's much, much harder to reach this group of uh, sort of less secure workers in general. And, you know, this is a particular problem for the UK. You know, we've got about 5 million uh, self-employed workers and it's risen considerably as a proportion of our workforce over the past uh, 20 years now. It's about 15% of the workforce. So it's a particular problem here. The honest answer is I don't think anyone around the world has really cracked this idea. I think the most interesting um, development is that in America, their own stimulus, their own sort of uh, rescue package is looking at simply mailing checks to people, right? So this gets out of the problem of saying, well, how do we reach self-employed people? Just everyone gets a check. Now, you could Mm. try and say this is like a universal temporary universal basic income i think that might be going a bit far because it doesn't sound like the checks are going to be enough to actually live on so this is more like a traditional uh sort of fiscal stimulus measure but um maybe maybe we will see more of those packages i mean we're going to hopefully we're we're, we're given indications that we're going to get something from the uk chancellor uh, rishi sunak for self-employed workers maybe tomorrow maybe the day after Will it do enough? You know, will, it, will the mechanics of it enable them to get the support they need quickly enough? We hope so. But if not, it may be that we go down the route of simply just spread, uh, spreading money around as, as uh, comprehensively as we can in the hope that it reaches them. 
That kind of direct support is a really interesting idea, actually. I think it speaks to the severity of the times we're now in, that those, those ideas are on the table. They quite often get initial pushback because it just sounds wrong to people that you might be sending money through to somebody who doesn't need it at a time when there are people who need it so, so acutely. But actually, as a way of injecting money into an economy, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you would think very few people would take the opportunity of a check in the post now to think, oh, I'll put that into uh, some savings or something, especially since, um, since, the, uh, since the markets aren't, aren't, don't look that appealing to a lot of people at the moment if they're still dropping. But um, ultimately, a lot of that money will be going back into the economy and it will be going back into places that, that individuals, that you and I see there is a need for, for something to be purchased, for some service mm. to be rendered. So it's, it's in, in, a, in a very disrupted economy where it's very hard to predict where the support is required. There's an argument that giving the consumers money enables those consumers to answer the big question for the government. Yeah. And the money I ends mean, up in the right spots. I mean, the key at the moment is really not spending so much as people's incomes not collapsing, right? So you want people who are sort of in the precariat section of society, who rely on self-employment earnings, gig economy, zero eyes, et cetera. You don't want their incomes to collapse so they can't buy food and medicines and groceries and all the things they need to do, the basic things. You don't want them to go out and sort of spend it on, well, they can't spend it, obviously, in nightlife and other things. So really it's focusing on just preserving their incomes through this time of crisis. And I think... The, the big picture for governments is, look, there are trade-offs involved. Yes, if you gave a lot of money, some of it would go to people who didn't need it. But at the same time, what's more important, the risk of wasting some money or the danger of some people not being reached. Absolutely. I think the issue is that they will increasingly be presented with is, actually, we just have to accept that hit of some degree of waste because it's more important that we help the people who are really in need. I don't think they're quite there yet, but I can see, I, could, I think it's feasible that we could get there. So turning away from the areas of, of central bankers and, and governments for a moment, and looking at private enterprise, talk to us about um, some of the stories you've seen about individual businesses and entrepreneurship answering some of the challenges that we see. We've seen some pretty, um, pretty sharp uh, realignments of business plans, you could say, some pretty quick reinventions of businesses in some ways that maybe do give us some hope that, that society is you know, perhaps going to rally to the cause here and, and, and do some good. Yeah, I think it's been quite interesting uh, looking at how businesses have responded to this sort of cataclysmic event for many of them. And it just underlines for me the fact that markets and the private sector are much more adaptable and innovative than we sometimes think sort of looking at it from a sort of high level uh, approach that people and individuals and entrepreneurs do think about ways around things and we have seen that as you as you mentioned you know f fast food restaurants their response to the prospects of a lockdown and the impending reality of it was to try and well can we do more deliveries right so leon was doing this uh, Starbucks in America um, said, well, let's convert our, our cafes into drive-throughs, right? Because that's going to be where the demand is. So little tweaks like that on an existing business model. In Bristol, there was a sort of boutique gin distillery. It looks like a very nice place. Um, and they realized that they didn't, there was a shortage of hand sanitizer. Remember, everyone was sort of scrambling around trying to get hold of the last 
uh, bottles of hand sanitizer in the supermarkets and they realize well hang on actually we've got the equipment to make hand sanitizer we've got alcohol so they started making batches for their own workers and then they thought well hang on there's actually a need in the community as well so let's let's produce our own and and give it away uh, to people who need it in return for a donation to charity so that's a classic example of using your equipment uh, keeping it up and running and actually serving a need in the community as well and, and you know um, just think how much the brand of that place and the esteem of that place has gone up in the eyes of uh, that community you know when this is all Absolutely. over people are going to think that is a great business great people working there and I think it's, a, it's an example of uh, entrepreneurs thinking laterally, thinking about the long term and also just doing, doing the things that you want entrepreneurs to do in these sort of really difficult times. I've heard some talk among uh, uh, environmental forums that this kind of disruption to our economy might actually give shape to a slightly different kind of economy coming out of it. If we have, as a society, this challenge of remaking everything, in the future at some point soon would we remake things in quite the same way as we left them if if the motoring industry is particularly hit would we be making the same kinds of cars would people take this as an opportunity to realign the travel industry um, around uh, a more carbon conscious um, uh, thoughts and processes do you think that's something that's a bit pie in the sky is that wishful thinking or is it just about crazy enough to be potentially true in the in the months to come I think this is such a profound shock to the, not just the UK economy, but the global economy. Um, it's exposed so much of the reality of the way our economies work, the way our lives work, the way our businesses work, that I don't think it's mad at all to think that it's a very serious possibility that there could be a profound change in many areas coming out of this. People, as we've just been discussing about businesses, will have to think very, very creatively and I think people will think about the way they live their lives as well. You know, working from home, I think people will have been confronted with the reality of their daily commute. I mean, they know about it, obviously, but they'll know that there's something else as well. Maybe teleworking after many, many years of people saying it's about to make a breakthrough, maybe it will finally happen after this. I think it's another sort of more subtle um, potential change as well. You know, Independent, there's a great campaigner on climate change and it's been urging real action from policymakers for so long and urge, you know, pushing out the public agenda, which has been absolutely brilliant. But maybe this has crystallised in people's minds in a way that other events haven't, that this threat is real. You know, pandemic is one threat, but climate change is another threat. Maybe this will be the spur saying, well, actually, we really do need to be serious about getting to net zero carbon by the middle of the century. And we do need to change the way we live. and We do need to make investments in all sorts of areas. So maybe that will, it's not directly related, but it is related in the sense of it's a threat, a common threat to mankind. Well, Ben, let's say we get some signs of, of, of something improving soon. We must get you back on the podcast um, in, uh, in a few weeks' time just to see how these um, indicators are going and seeing mm. how businesses are reacting we um, are very keen on getting some feedback on our podcast this is the first episode of it uh, particularly maybe if you're one of those um, innovative uh, business leaders who maybe you're running your own 
private enterprise, maybe it's a, a, a tiny, maybe you're self-employed, maybe you're a one-man operator, one-woman operator, uh, maybe you're running a, a huge uh, corporation, um, we would love to hear from you. We would also love to hear from you with some suggestions of other themes we could unpick in this podcast. As we say, we intend to touch on everything from uh, well-being and, and, and how to keep your kids well-educated and, and quiet in the background at home while you're trying to get some work done, um, and all kinds of things coming up. Um, so please do email us. The email address to use is the coronavirus podcast at independent.co.uk. Um, we're also following the hashtag Indie Coronavirus Podcast. That's I-N-D-Y Coronavirus Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Um, you can also reach out directly to me on Twitter. I'm at Christian underscore B. We will be bringing you another episode just as soon as we can. Um, do please hit the subscribe button on your podcast provider because that's going to be the best way for you to know when we have um, brought you another podcast. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you stay safe and well and we look forward to hearing from you.